Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. Welcome to this week's episode, the first of two instalments where we count down the Evolve to Succeed Top 10 Podcasts of 2021. Though not as tumultuous as 2020, 2021 was another year of great challenge, adjustment and change, as well as hope and optimism as we continue to slowly emerge from the pandemic that shook all of our lives. Through it all, we've endeavoured with the podcast to bring you guests with compelling stories and interesting journeys. The aim with this podcast has always been to inform, inspire and entertain, as well as challenge you with new viewpoints and opinions. It's been really great to have you along as our listeners this year. Thank you to all of those of you that have subscribed and reviewed the podcast. Myself and the Evolve team look forward to bringing you more exciting guests and episodes in 2022. For now though, let's begin with the guests that have made the top 10 to 6. I hope you enjoy. Coming in at number 10 is Pip Hare, who in February became only the 8th woman in history to finish the prestigious and grueling Vendée Globe around the world yacht race. She was also the first British skipper to finish this year's edition of the race, covering the 24,365 miles in 95 days, 11 hours and 37 minutes. This is actually Pip's second appearance on the podcast. In the months prior to her departure for the Vendée Globe, she came into the studio and onto the show to talk about her preparations and also spoke at an event in pre-pandemic times for us. Even then, I was impressed by her quiet determination, fearlessness and unwavering confidence. Therefore, during the course of the Vendée Globe, I watched her progress with great interest. And once she was back on land, I was keen to get her back on the show to hear about her experience. Here are some of the key moments from that episode. I've heard you speak about the pandemic and the effect not it necessarily had on your your build up to the program, but the the sort of the race village beforehand, not being able to have friends and family around, was that having a profound effect on you at the time? Yeah, I think it, you know it was quite difficult to to put aside the disappointment around that. Um, mm. You know, it was a really special moment for me, and I kind of was expecting that it would also be a special moment for for many other people, um, you know, my friends and family, but also all the people who had supported me on the journey, you know, it was kind of supposed to be a celebration for everyone. Um, and it wasn't. Um, and, you know, the, the, the race village was closed. Um, you know, we, we just didn't, didn't get that side of things. And, 
and although you know what we I always felt really really honored and grateful that we got to race it was really hard to just put aside that disappointment of yeah. what should have been I wondered whether I would notice time, whether it would start to feel like a long time, whether time would start to be a problem for me. But I made a point of not counting time um, or not recording time because it's, I think for me, a more, um, uh, a better way of, of marking the passage of the race was actually through geography and weather systems Um, because kind of time is almost immaterial because, you know, the time it takes you to cross an ocean depends on the weather. And so if you're looking for these, if you're looking for these kind of stepping stones, these milestones, then you're much better doing them with geography than with time and actually I just didn't I didn't notice it I mean most of the time I had no idea how long I'd been out there for did your expectations yourself change as the race went on um I I don't know that my expectations of myself changed because you know I had always gone into it wanting to do the best I possibly could wanting to know that by the end of the race I could hold my head up and say you know I did everything within my capabilities to um you know to to put in the best performance that I could but what did change was um my um I guess my understanding of those capabilities so I went into it thinking that I should and I should have been you know the boat was 21 years old it was the second oldest Mm. boat in the race and I when I went into it I sort of thought I would be happy to be in the bottom five really um you know there was one other boat Alexia was in a boat very similar to mine Um, And I kind of thought, right, I'd like to be Alexia. Um, And then I looked at the next ones up that were 2007 boats and thought, if I could be somewhere close to these boats, then that would be great. But by the middle of the Southern Ocean, I had five foiling boats behind me. Yeah. And so my, I guess my, um, my uh, competitiveness or what I expected from myself um changed in 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 in, so I was always putting in the same amount of effort but where I expected to be with results changed I think yeah what did you learn about yourself in terms of your ability to self you know sort of self-talk and motivate yourself did you take yourself to a level that you didn't expect before even compared to the other challenges that you've undertaken um I think I think I did. I think I, I think I'm a lot, a lot stronger than, than I thought I was. Um, and a lot more, um, pragmatic. I think, you know, I, I, I've never been a person that gives up. Uh, I would not even say it's not a question of giving up easily. It's a question of giving up ever. I just Mm -hmm. don't give up. But I think, 
my I guess I what I found during the Vendée was actually that kind of manifested itself in my willingness to push myself and endure physical discomfort Mm -hmm. and mental fatigue maybe more than my competitors um and and kind of the more I saw that that where that got me the more willing I was to to invest in that we've got to talk about passing the finish line and co- and completing the Vendée. So uh, how was, how did, you know, that feel? I think I've heard you talk about it, it was quite a um, concerning period up until the kind of f- finish line. There was lots of boats around, lots of things going on. What was it like? Um, it, it was very, very stressful um, for a number of reasons. I mean, for the whole race, for three months, my strategy had been not to sail upwind, um, not to sail anywhere there were lots, there was lots of other traffic, um, and and not to get close to the land. Um, and so, you know, in the last twelve hours of the race, I was doing exactly that. Um, I ended up sailing into the, the most I saw was thirty knots, so nearly gale force winds. I was sailing directly into them. Um, fishing boats everywhere uh and I was making a landfall at night on a rocky coast um <laughs> so it was kind of just this <laughs> just yeah. everything every you know your 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 natural your natural seamanship with the things that you've been working towards for so long you you have to go against all of them but also yeah. um you know I hadn't I hadn't been looking after the boat in the same way um for the last two days so I'd had a couple of problems on the boat a couple of breakages which had I been in the middle of the ocean in a different part of the race Mm. then I would have kind of sailed to somewhere that I could properly address those and fix them properly but because I was being forced towards a point racing towards a point then I kind of did quick fixes on them because I knew they only had to last for, you know, 36 hours. Uh, And even in the last six hours of the race, the the ropes that were holding my my keel, so my keel swings from side to side, and the ropes that were holding my keel in position broke. Um, And so rather than kind of doing a, a, a proper fix on that, I did a quick fix, which just pinned my keel into the middle which meant that I couldn't sail as fast as I wanted to. Um, So it was kind of all of these things just really, I was the most stressed I'd been in the whole race uh, coming into that finish. I was so stressed that, you know, I I actually had terrible cramp in my stomach. Um, And I, I wasn't sure that I would be able to be happy when I crossed the line because I was so stressed Hmm. and I didn't want to see a camera. I didn't want people to take photos of me because I kind of thought everyone was going to be expecting me to be so happy. And I didn't know if I could, Um, but actually, you know, it, it was really stressful until about a mile away from the line. Um, my support boat came out. And, and they kind of stood off a bit. Um, and then 
all of the race committee support boats came out in the middle of the night, all of these lights surrounding me. And then, you know, you don't have a choice. There's a massive big <laughs> launch alongside you, just shining the biggest spotlight on you you can possibly imagine. And it's kind of, well, I could go down below and hide or, or just, <laughs> just, yeah. just kind of, you know. Go just, with it. Yeah. And actually, you know, then then you're like, well, what am I, you know, what do they want me to do? Well, they want me to, 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 you know, Hold to raise, yeah, the, to raise my, and, and then you kind of, then, then it really hits you and you think, well, wow, I've, I've done it. Done it. Yeah. I've done it. I have just raced single-handed around the world and, and it was amazing. It was just the most amazing feeling. Um, incredible. Yeah. Number nine on our list is Tracy Howes, founder of social media consultancy Blue Mind, as well as a qualified breathwork coach and competitive freediver. Tracy's career has been varied and started in retail in her native South Africa. She then went on to become a broker for a modelling agency, also appearing in front of the camera herself. After moving to the UK in 2000, she worked in the hospitality and luxury sectors in London, before eventually moving to Bournemouth and starting Blue Mind. Tracy found a passion for freediving about three years ago, and it was the serenity she discovered through this sport that led her to an interest in breathwork. It was after my podcast with Tracy in January this year that I too took an interest in breathwork and the benefits it may bring. I've therefore undertaken some regular breathwork sessions with Tracy and have really felt a difference in both body and mind. Anyway... Tracy's story is one of recognising and seizing opportunities, persistence, adaptivity, and above all, seeing the value of regularly pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Here are some of my favourite parts. You know, after 19 years in London, I made the decision to move to Bournemouth to be closer to my family and have a change of pace because at that time I was running two businesses. You know, I was working almost seven days a week it was, you know, to the point where I think my, my mental and physical health started to suffer and I needed to take care of myself. And a change was needed. And my family just kept saying, come down to Bournemouth. You know, you love the beach. You miss the ocean. Come, come down. So I just thought, actually, this is exactly what I need to do. And I moved down in 2018 and I just took stock. You know, physical, mental, emotional health is so important for any entrepreneur actually wanted to niche my business down instead of being full service marketing events, PR, social, I want to focus on the one area that people always asked for support with. And that was social media. And I was in the process of working out how that would look. And then COVID hit us, which was a real shocker. However, losing 50% of your clients and your income, you get over that and you go, okay, what am I going to do now? And what it has given me this year is the time to really think about how Blue Mind Social would look. And that is where we are right now. In my very early career, I didn't actually know what a mentor was. So it's only on reflection that you realize that these people came into your life and were there to support you. Um, but there's a very strong argument for the fact that you you don't just approach someone and say, can you mentor me? It's almost an organic process. For me, it was very much the fact that I was employed by these people and we just had a strong bond and I would 
ask a lot of questions and they would answer all my questions and constantly supported that. And I think when I say organic, it comes from if you show a strong interest in something and and other people recognize that in you, it's the good ones that will say, how can I help you be a better version of what you are, you know, and constantly asking for support and help. So all of those, you know, I don't remember ever once sitting down with someone saying, can you mentor me? You know, that might be different now where you have organizations that assign you a mentor. But for me, it happened very organically. But I think it comes back to being curious and, and constantly asking, asking questions. Do you think you are always destined to run your own business? Absolutely. <laughs> no and doubt. what was that? Is that independence of mind? Is that? strength of character, a drive to do that. Why do you think that was? I've thought about this a lot over the years. Um, you know, I would say it feels instinctive to me. I enjoyed being employed and learning, but I was chomping at the bit to do my own thing. And I'm a creative person. I'm curious. I'm always, as I say, asking questions, but I also like to be in control of my destiny. And, you know, what I've had to learn over the years and sometimes a hard lesson to learn is that you cannot do everything yourself. So my nature is very typically, you know, I, I, I like to be the leader of the pack. I like to have great ideas. I like to implement them and I like to see them through, but all of that doesn't work unless you have support around you. But I think the other thing I would say is that coming from South Africa, you know, growing up, before Nelson Mandela was released, you know, going through a lot of political turmoil, a lot of people at that time, you know, were forced to be entrepreneurial in order to survive in their businesses. And, you know, perhaps this could be applied to anywhere in the world where there's political upheaval, but it does bring out the best and worst in people. And I think if you're given an opportunity to thrive and be independent, absolutely take it and run with it and perhaps it is part of my nature but I think yeah external environment definitely has an impact as part of our training we combine lung and diaphragm stretches with specific types of yoga breathing and essentially what we're doing is becoming comfortable with the discomfort of increased co2 levels in our body so it's very much a mental game as, as a physical because the one thing with free diving, as soon as you hold your breath and you go underwater, your fight or flight response activates and your fears come rushing to the fore. You know, so if you've had a bad day, you won't be able to hold your breath. I've seen it over and over again in the pool with, with divers getting in very agitated and they just cannot perform because their mind takes over. Is there generally health benefits for when you're on land living everyday life from undertaking some of these breathing exercises, Tracy? Absolutely. Um, I can say very honestly that I really struggled with anxiety towards the, probably more, more so towards the end of my time in London. And when I moved to Bournemouth, I wanted to find ways to manage that anxiety and free diving gave that to me. You know, I did look at all sorts of other therapies and options, but as soon as I was in the water, all of these wonderful things activated. My heart rate came down. The yoga breathing gave me this power to to increase my breath hold. And 
I practice daily because it enables me to maintain an equanimity. And also when really stressful situations arise, you don't, you don't arise with them. You actually, you can take a much more rational approach. And with regular practice, you can retrain your brain because it, it, it comes back to that point of increased neuroplasticity for what we pay the most attention to. So by training the breath, this is a gift you can give yourself, essentially. What does success mean to you? Wow, that's a big question. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I think for me, it's being connected to myself and how I connect to the, the outside world, nature, you know, for example, has a, is, is powerful and happiness is something we, we choose, we, we strive for. But if you are putting your mind and body into an environment where you can accelerate finding those things that give you joy and happiness, whether it is creating a business, learning a new skill, you know, I go back to a quote from Wallace J. Nichols' book, he says, having a biocentric perspective sees humanity as part of nature and treating it as an equal partner. So if we treat nature with the respect it deserves, it gives back to us tenfold. And for me, tying in my personal success to the world around me, it's hugely important. So success for me is a combination of how I, I look at myself in the mirror every day and how I relate to the, the world outside and if the business is, is a success, then I've achieved my goals. And number eight this year was our podcast we recorded with Steve Bolton, currently CEO of Bolt Partners, which is a portfolio of sustainable and socially responsible companies. Steve left school at 16 with no qualifications and has not only started several highly successful businesses, he's also a best-selling author. Steve's infectious enthusiasm for life and work, as well as his strong beliefs in personal development and a growth mindset, made for great company on this episode. He also mentors for one hour per week for free, such as his desire to educate and lead others towards a more positive outlook for themselves and for them to gain results. All of these elements, the focus on personal development, the power of mentorship, and that resilience to achieve no matter what the circumstances and your level of education are all topics I'm passionate about. And this was a conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed as a result. Is that advice you'd give to others start thinking about starting their business to transcend from sort of, you know, they're in a, in a job now looking to start their business? Do you think there is a set way of perhaps running in this kind of, you know, there's a lot of people and gurus and I don't like the term, but this kind of side hustle thing, start sure. the thing on the side, yeah. see what happens, then give up the income stream. Or do you just go balls out and in? What, what advice would you give? Um, do you know what? I think Warren, with most questions, there isn't a right answer. Yeah. You know, it's individual to each individual person. So I, I, I really try and avoid there's some things like, you know, having mentors or, you know, learning and progressing, those sorts of things. But, you know, so, so I think it's very individualistic. It was very easy for me because I wasn't earning much money. So to actually start something as a bit of a on the side and build that up, it's not like I was earning 150 grand a year, right? I was earning about 12,000 pound a year. So all I needed to do was have something else that would give me a thousand pound a month. And that that would you know you more than I needed. So I think so. I think it's it's you know very different. Some businesses 
require a lot of capital. They are high risk, but I'm, I'm a great believer that wherever possible, if you can de-risk it, always look for what's the worst case scenario. Can you live with that? If you can't, then how can you de-risk that worst case scenario? Because the harsh reality is um, only one in 20 people are an entrepreneur. 19 out of 20 people in the general population are employed in a job. Mm. And the reason for that is because they realize, you know, most entrepreneurs work longer, earn less, <laughs> have more stress. <laughs> right? It's not easy. You know, you know, we, we've both yeah. done it. We've been through the ups and the downs. We both work with businesses all the time and we see the challenges. You know, when you get it right and it works, it's fantastic. Um, so for me, it was partly about the money, but partly about the freedom, the choice, being my own boss. I'd rather work 100 hours a week for myself than I would work, you know, 50 hours for somebody else because I'm the master of my own destiny. You know, business is a game played by the numbers. Uh, and you know better than anybody. If you don't understand your numbers and you don't have a team of people that can support you in that area, you are not going to succeed, right? I've never met a really successful business person that is not really strong or has a core member of their team that really understands the numbers of their business. So improving my financial competence and building a team around me that could do that was critical to success. One of my mentors, always a guy called Jay Abraham, um, always says strategy always trumps tactics. You know, so so actually what, you know, strategy is harder to sort of um, define and implement and it's slower to actually get results from but the you know the foundations all external results that we achieve are the result of internal thinking decision you know thoughts feelings actions right so success starts Stephen Covey calls it starts from the inside out um so unless you're I spoke on stage once actually with um Stelios with EasyJet and it was okay. a it was at a business startup show and I always remember I was on before and then he went on after and he listened to my talk and uh, and he came on. He said, look, I feel like I'm a bit of a fraud because I'm talking to you as, as a startup show. Uh, and unlike Steve, you know, I didn't start with nothing. I went to 30 banks because I had this uh, this idea for an airline called EasyJet. The banks turned me down. I went to my dad and he said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy start. It's it's an easy start, easy right? start not easy jet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I think for the reality is for most self-made um, entrepreneurs um, that actually it's about the thoughts, the decisions, the actions, the learning. You know, they have a massive bias for action, all of those sorts of things. So for me, it was kind of when I lost everything, one of my big aha moments was there's got to be people that have been there and done this, right? There's got to be other people. There's got to be giant I can learn from. So I bought books. I went on courses. But unlike what I call the shelf help brigade, people that buy loads of books but don't apply any of it or apply very little of it, you know, the course junkies, um, I would just go on it and I would immediately apply as many things as I could and put them into action. Um, so I think it's a it was a mix of not just personal development, professional development so i'm all for personal professional development i'm all for people investing in their education as long as they go into it with their eyes wide open um and you know but that's why i think books are one of the best you know one of the best investments you can make right somebody has spent two three four five years writing the bloody thing yeah then they've got and we've both been there we've both written books they don't write themselves easily do they <laughs>
So you're taking all of that knowledge from your whole life, then spending one to five years to write the bloody thing and get it edited and get it published. And then the thing's being sold for five, 10, 15 quid, right? So for me, it's just like, and then you can go on the internet and say, right, I want a book summary. So you can go, or go on Blinkist, you know, and you can get the, the essence of that book in 10, 20, 15, 20 minutes. Or watch a YouTube video on it because loads of people would have done YouTube videos. So I think you can actually learn a heck of a lot by not spending very much money um, and taking action and, you know, and learning from things. Having mentors, like I say, is for me, that's been the difference that's made the difference in my life and in most people's lives is the right mentors, the right non-exec directors, the right consultants, the right advisors, that framework of people around you that have a vested interest in your success, but they're not selling hopes to dreamers. They're actually dealing with yeah. you in the moment on your business or on your challenge. That's what I think is super powerful. The conversation has been all about business, making money, succeeding, all of those kind of things. But I also know, and it's clear with anybody that does any research on you and, and, and things that are important to you is giving as well, you know, and not just giving your time that we talked about, you know, in terms of put a hand up, put a hand down and those kind of things, but making sure that you're giving back to good causes. And, can you, you know, I think all of us, you know, that appeals to all of us, but you, you're taking it that one step further. You've made a commitment as a family that you're going to give away 51% uh, of your wealth. Um, yep. And do you want to just... Again, I think it'd be good for our listeners just to hear some of your thoughts, values, principles around, you know, charitable giving and, and those kind of things. Yeah, definitely. I think it um, two big influences for me on it were my mum. You know, she's the kind of person mm. who would give to charity, but we'd be driving along. She'd stop outside of the bus stop and, you know, there'd be two two ladies there. And she'd be like, you're going to bingo, ladies? And they'd be like, yeah, jump in. So she'd save them the bus fare and we'd have these two ladies in the back of the car and she'd drop them off. At <laughs> you know, so all, all through my childhood, my mum was just a, an eternal giver and she, she still is now. Um, and then the other thing, you probably remember it, um, but, you know, Live Aid and actually mm. seeing the impact that all these pop stars, because it was like during the 80s, right, when it was... It was 85, wasn't it, or something like that, yeah. yeah. Margaret Thatcher, Stock Market, Yuppies, um, you know, the uh, Wall Street movie, the first time that came out, that sort of thing. It was all about making loads of money at the expense of everybody else. And then it was this group of pop stars that actually wanted to make a difference in, in Africa and that sort of thing. So, and then more, you know, and then later you saw like um, Bono and Bill Gates and the Giving Pledge and all these billionaires, Warren Buffett, basically saying, we're going to give more than 50% of our wealth away. Um, so that's really where it came from. And I think my real passion for it was ignited more when I applied uh, or tried to apply for the the giving pledge. Uh, but they okay. were me because I'm not <laughs> even close to being a billionaire. Um, so it's a club that I wasn't able to join. I didn't like that. Um, and I just thought there's got to be lots of other people that, you know, do good work and uh, and want to help others. So for me, I have a vision of, of a foundation, a Bolt Foundation in the future. That's part of our, our roadmap and our plan. Number seven on our list is Tim Lewis, director at Lewis Investment. Tim founded Lewis Investment in 1987 and I've known him for a very long time. He's someone with a reputation for good business values and principles, as well as someone who honours his word and places a high value on loyalty and integrity. Tim actually started out wanting to be a fisherman and is still drawn to the water with his passion for kite serving. 
He's one of those individuals whose tenacity, determination and adaptability have seen and overcome numerous obstacles by turning those obstacles into opportunities. His 34 years of being the helm of a business have also endowed him with some valuable insights and wisdom around leadership and the nature of success and failure. And he shared this all with us during the course of this episode. But it's a very sad day because I, I came, so I was kicked out of university. That's not why it was sad. I mean, that's life. But I came back from uh, Reading University and it was the day my brother died. So my older brother was killed in a motorbike accident. And I think probably that day sort of shaped your rest, the rest of your life. Okay. So when you were then, sort of early 20s? I was 21, yeah. Wow. And he was 23. So, how? so it was a great shock. Yeah. So what was great about it, I guess, was, it's not really business orientated, this bit, but no, um, yeah. I was there for the family after Nick passed away. Okay. And I think that was probably what helped keep the family together, was that I was there for... Right. Um, for the family, I was the second oldest. Okay. And Nick was the older one. The guy running the company um, wasn't very straight with me. Right. He said, if it works well after a year, we'll talk about you having shares just in the business that you sort of set up. And then after a year, we sat down and had lunch, and I said, well, we need to talk about these shares. And he said, oh, no, you're not going to get any shares. Okay. And so I went home. That was on the Friday, and on the Monday morning, I resigned. Wow. And uh, so I started with zero clients, Working from my bedroom back in Bournemouth. Yeah. Uh, that was in London. And uh, sort of started from scratch, really. Wow. So it's quite exciting. And do you think, I mean, there's two things there, and, and I don't, you know, the situation with your brother and, and Nick and, and everything, that, you, that clearly has shaped you and your attitude towards life, I assume. That has to be so fundamental, doesn't it? I think probably the main thing that comes out of that is that you want to live every day to the maximum because yeah. you don't know when it's going to be your last. Yeah. So, so, and I think I've taken that probably to the extreme, but I've, okay. I've really enjoyed it. And in business as well, I think yeah. I've taken, it sort of shaped my business life as well as my so personal it takes life. a different attitude towards business risk. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, and I'm, I'm similar to you, maybe it, it sounds a bit old school, but you shake a hand and a handshake is a handshake or you look somebody in the eye and say, you're going to do something. And you fulfill it and you do it. Absolutely. And I know that is your philosophy, but I get frustrated, but surely you must get really frustrated with kind of perhaps this modern world of being kind of not so transparent and people backing out of things and people not honouring their word. And how do you deal with that when that happens, Tim? I think maybe I've got a little bit more laid back and sort of I, I sort of understand it a, a little bit more now. And yes, the world is different, but I still think that people inherently... It's their DNA that creates them. And, and the people I want to deal with are people like me, if you like. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> that old-fashioned way. But also, you shouldn't throw your toys out if people do change their mind or yeah. if they do want to be doing life. something different. That's life. And certainly don't let it worry you because you've got yeah. to move on. How did the business become what it is today? So today... Well, two know. weeks after I started, of course, in 1987, the stock market crashed. Yeah. So, so that's perfect timing. <laughs> Mm, um, okay. September 1987 so but again you can either look at it negatively or positively and yeah. my view was positive because anyone that I was getting to invest in the stock markets was buying in at a cheap time yeah there's upside to come yeah yeah so took it from there we worked from home for a couple of years actually much to mum and dad's annoyance I think and then 
maybe a year off that, maybe off two or three years, um, Gresham Life was sold and okay. Dad was um, unemployed, if you like. <laughs> uh, and he said to me, or well, I think I said to him, actually, why don't you come and work part-time for me? Because he was you know, nearly at retirement age anyway. Yeah. And he loved it. And, and so he and I formed a sort of partnership together. Um, he was 58 or 59 or something yeah. like that, same age as me now. And I was 26, 27, something wow. like that. Okay. Um, and we got on really well. Yeah. Um, we went, we took some offices. I think the first offices we took were in Bournemouth on, on Christchurch Road. Yeah. Next door to a firm of solicitors called Philip Evans. Yeah. And above the offices that you came along as a, yeah. as a, trainee, as a trainee accountant. Yeah. What's Tyson Limited yeah, as a trainee? Watson Co. And yeah. became Watson, Watson Co. Co. Yeah. And I was a trainee accountant. That's where we first met. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We were upstairs on the first floor. You were on the ground floor. Yeah. Small world. So we were a very small company, yeah. Um, but we were just developing a very nice client bank that trusted us, and we trusted them, and just grew, built it up gradually. And yeah. dad, dad eventually retired, maybe five years later. Okay. Um, and my mum did the books. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I'm proudest about where we are actually making waves is uh, in 2013 we set up um, a, a pension scheme that was suitable for people to do auto-enrolment um, okay. through. And all the big companies were not providing suitable auto-enrolment schemes for smaller businesses. They'd say, oh, if you've got 300 staff, we'll give you a scheme. That's Scottish Widows. Yeah. If you're smaller than that, you won't have it. And yeah. yet it was becoming law. Yeah. So we decided to set up our own what's called a master trust. Okay. And we, we've now got 150, about 150 employers within that master trust, the wow. biggest with 2,500 staff. But we are... We went through a very rigorous process of being, becoming authorised by the pension regulator. And yeah. there's only now, I think there's probably 22 or 23 master trusts, of which we are the smallest or second smallest. And all our competitors are the Standard Lives and the Vivas. Um, wow. Um, and how do you stand out in that field? Always the fact that your niche is, is that you're there for the smaller business. I think the niche, we've got... Two two niches there. One is we take a very simple view on investments. The majority of our employees, if you like, the average yeah. age is forty one. Yeah, and they should be um, in real assets, so in equities. Yeah. Um, so we don't run a managed fund on that. We run a pure equity fund on that. Yeah. Because that's how they're going to make the most money um, with their pension funds, and they need to. Yeah. <laughs> going forward. And the second thing is we provide advice. So every year, one of our advisors or two of our advisors will go along to the company and uh, have open forum with employees and provide individual advice okay. included within their fees so they can have advice without any charge. I, th I still think that if we can get the business right going forwards, there's no reason why we shouldn't be a 60-year-old or 70- or 80-year-old company. Yeah. Um, but I think getting the shape of the business right is the most important thing for it to have yeah. longevity. You know, I've got a good team of people that are younger than me yeah. that are on the board now, and yeah. I am sort of stepping back a little bit in terms of the day-to-day -day work yeah. um, and trying to get the bigger picture right and the shape right of the business. That's the future. If you can get that, if I can get that bit right, then I think we've got longevity. The last guest for this episode is Cass Patton, CEO of OnBuy.com, an online retailer offering millions of products from thousands of sellers to hundreds of countries. Cass, 
founded on Buy in 2016 and has gone on to enjoy incredible success, experiencing 600% year-on-year growth for the past three years. Cass also recently received a £5 million investment to scale up on Buy into over 140 countries by 2023. Kaz is a Jeff Bezos in the making, although I'm not sure he'll appreciate me saying that. And his is a rare story of one man turning a business idea into something hugely profitable in a very short period of time. I was interested to understand not only how did he feel about this, but how he's managed to cope with such rapid growth, both personally and professionally. He's a very confident individual with huge visions for his company and an enviable amount of self-belief to back those dreams up. After being in the military, I came out, I, I did my law degree. And while I was doing my law degree, I thought, this is so slow. This is so, so slow. So I set up my first business at 21. Um, I had 27 staff by the time I came out of university. We were working in nine countries, um, helping businesses to grow and scale uh, as fast as possible. And part of that strategy was obviously marketplace. I used to tell businesses how to make the most marketplace and everything that goes with growing e-commerce, you know, reverse logistics like returns, um, you know, uh, tax and cross-border implications and all of these things. But Marketplace was really, you know, uh, the, the centric piece of helping businesses to scale at fixed cost. And then after years of consulting businesses to make the most of Amazon and eBay and everyone else, I uh, started to see that the Marketplace landscape was changing um, and that Marketplaces, or many of them, won't say who, you can you can uh, you can figure that out yourself. But many of those marketplaces more focused on retailing their own products than the marketplace products. And I found that my clients were playing constant cat and mouse, which products are the next products to sell, and then they were losing their top lines to the marketplace. And I just decided, enough is enough. Uh, I'm sure we can do something better. And that's where this whole thing started. Yeah. You know, let's be clear. I started my business as a fairly modest guy from a fairly modest family um you know middle middle class but mm. probably lower middle to be fair and um money did not come easily so when i w- when i was the entrepreneurial guy that went out and wanted to start my own thing and was so desperate to, to get out there into the big wide world and always been a natural salesman or whatever um and then you know, to, to amass a, a, a significant wealth and then to me, half a million pounds to throw into a new venture is not something that you can just, everyone can just do like that. It was, and I couldn't either. So once we get to that point to be able to do this, that was everything I'd worked for for 10 years. That was it. That was your security you know? blanket, wasn't it? Yeah, a hundred percent, you know, so I, I made sure that the family was secure uh, you know, we had a house and, and, and the, you know, we, we said, this is going to be a big thing. And I had to let go of an income. I let go of a salary. I let go of, a, of all of that and said, right, I'm going to do this. And for the next two years, I'm not going to have a salary. Not only am I going to put all of my savings into this, but I'm also not going to have a salary. Um, and yeah, that first few years is incredibly hard. Imagine that you launch your business. And this is the difficulty of marketplace, very different to other businesses. So you launch your business, you've got 14 people. You say, this is what we're going to do. We know how we're going to make a difference. You open your doors on day one with a product that's taking you, you know, more than two and a half years to develop um, and all of your savings and you've cut your salary to nothing. And then you say, I am going to make this the best e-commerce company on the planet. That's the goal. That's got the goal, draw the line in the sand. 
We've got several stages to get there, but you open your doors. Day one, we've got nothing to sell. I used to say to my team when they joined us, look, on buys a seesaw. Think of it like this. You've got to, you've got to wait at one side. You've got to wait at the other side of the seesaw. And at the minute, it's completely shifted. And that that is a little bit about credibility because what I used to say to my sales team was retailers don't really want us at the minute. The seesaw is tipped completely one way. We really need their products because we need supply. But as we scale, as we grow, as we get more powerful for the customer, which is the ultimate goal, because retailers was really the solve the supply side. We need to do that first. So OnBuy was very, you know, retailer centric in the first instance, naturally, because we need supply. And we will remain partners to those retailers, don't get me wrong. But there's a point where that seesaw would tip a little bit. And once it starts to tip, what's going to happen is we've got the customer. We Customers are shopping with us in, in huge numbers because we add value to them. They like our service. They understand our product. They add what we bring to the table, which is transparency. And we look after our retailers and everything else. And we get them good deals, which is the consequence of having these partnerships. So whole thing works. And once this seesaw starts to tip, once you get to that point of equilibrium, the balance is, 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 and you give it that little push, that's when everything can swing the other way. And what's been the biggest challenge of that phenomenal growth? If there was one thing when you look back now and you, that you would have done differently, What's been the biggest challenge through that growth period? I don't know if it's that we would have done it differently because I think you do what you do because you can do it at that time. And I think if we, if I was to go back in time, would I have done things differently? Only if the situation was different. So if I went back in time now with the investment levels that we've got now, for example, and I was able to start again, I would do things differently. I would do things differently because my ultimate focus is the customer. Uh, not investors. Um, and actually, it, it, sometimes those things um, don't align exactly because you have to you have to balance both sides of the equation. Um, sometimes, you know, you've got to show a healthy business to justify investment at a time that if money wasn't an issue, you would do things maybe more patiently and over a different period. So, yeah, if I had money, I would do things a little bit differently. And maybe some of the noise that we shouted about wouldn't have happened quite so soon. And and a few other bits and pieces. But overall, I think, you know, one of the things that the bits of feedback we get, at least from, you know, the venture capital world is this was enough. This was a business no one thought would be even be possible to launch in the UK. Um, you know, and, and Onbuy would have never received significant investment um, from a, a venture capital company. Um, it any any sooner than we did because it's just not an opportunity anyone would have would have believed could could happen and that that's great for me because it means that there's certainly not any competition uh in the space doing what we we've been able to do because it costs too much money what has the effect of you being entrepreneurial you going through the journey that you have had on your kind of personal family life i think it's very hard for people like me to switch off so i've found that over the years incredibly challenging i think it's taken me 15 16 years to get to the point that i now am able to switch off you know if you go back to when i was much younger i i never stopped working i worked yeah. all the time i literally did not stop if i went out for dinner i, I was doing emails on my phone if I went on a holiday, I was working the entire holiday. I There was no switch off. It was constantly yeah. on. 
And I think what happens is you have children, you grow up a bit, you learn a lot, and you realize how you can be more efficient. And actually, do you know what? All of this work that I'm doing, I'm never switching off, but am I actually getting more done or is it just poor prioritization? Because, and some of these tasks that I'm doing, can someone else do this? Because am I the best person to be doing this? Is there value in trying to make sure that what I do, I'm 100% and not tired because I'm doing everything? And can we get more out of this? Um, and it's part of that evolutionary process. So that's it for now. Please join me next week for our top five countdown. <laughs>